Welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wing podcast, where we're recording at the uh, Pheasants Forever offices in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, as the snow melts and we have a drip coming out of the ceiling, <laughs> falling into a five-gallon bucket. So all those members out there listening know that uh, your dollars are going to create habitat <laughs> and not fix the roof here. <laughs> but uh, uh, that's kind of a badge of honor around this organization is that uh, we, we do live, work in a <laughs> nondescript warehouse in suburban Twin Cities, and our dollars are going exactly where our members are pointing them towards, and that's in the ground for Habitat. And since uh, this particular podcast is airing in the month of April, that means it's our Bird Dogs for Habitat month. So please check out Bird Dogs for Habitat campaign online, where each year um, we raise money uh, through a voting contest for different breeds of bird dogs uh, to put into our habitat mission. Because we know that so many of our members' love for the uplands comes from that connection to a four-legged canine. And my guest today is, is no different. Uh, he's got a love for canines. His name is Tony Peterson. And with a name like Tony Peterson, my good friend Tony Peterson. <laughs> thanks for being here, by the way. Thanks for having me, man. Um, with a name like Tony Peterson, you, you, you probably get mistaken for, um, well, not maybe mistaken, but your name is out there on so many different types of media. And, and you can help me fill in the gaps. You're the host of Hunt for Real podcast, mm -hmm. uh, which is primarily focused on white tails, right? A lot of big game stuff. A lot of bow hunting. Bow yep. hunting. Um, you write for Outdoor News. If if you live in Minnesota, you've seen your name every issue of Minnesota Outdoor News for decades. A long time, right? <laughs> it feels like you're that anyway. You're not that old, uh, yeah, but but it's it. You're you're there every single issue. You write for Peterson's. Gun dog. Um, more recently, you've been writing a fair amount for Meat Eater. Yep. Um, doing podcasts with Meat Eater, um, and you're the host of Sporting Dog Talk podcast. And I, I was looking through the uh, your podcasts um, kind of files. You've recorded 58 episodes already. Yep. So you're knocking down at <laughs> least once a, one a week. Right one now. a week. Yep. And your guests have included. Tom Dockin, Tina Dockin, Josh Miller, Tiffany Lukoski, Carl Gunzer, George Hickox, Ron Shera, our, our very own Marissa Jensen, John Locks. The list goes on and on and on. <laughs> yeah, Mar Marissa's one of my favorites because she and I, we have about five people we really like in this world, and the rest of them are just dogs. <laughs> and so, and, and we both have a we have a love for turtles and frogs. And so, yeah. I think that Marissa Jensen might be my spirit animal on some <laughs> level. Well, Marissa, there you go. There's a pretty good shout out for you, yep. your spirit animal. So uh, I mentioned like Tony Peterson. It's a pretty common name. Um, in the outdoor space, are there any other Tony Petersons or is everything <laughs> that I've ever written or I'm sorry, ever read or listened to about whitetails, smallmouth, uh, pheasants, is that all done by you? It is, as far as I know, 
almost all done by me. So this is people. People will be like, "Oh, this guy seems really cocky because he has his a middle initial." And so I, I write under Tony J. Peterson. And the reason for that is I made the mistake of Googling myself like seven years ago. Uh-huh. And I didn't, I was just, I was like sitting there going, how many writers are named Tony Peterson in this country? And I wasn't even the only outdoor writer with that name. There was, and there was a guy who was like a tournament fisherman, fisherman from California who was kind of doing some stuff in the outdoor space. And I'm like, I'm not even the only freaking outdoor writer <laughs> with this name. So then I, I started putting the J in there. Just as like a searchable thing, and now I'm kind of locked into it. And so people people think there's uh, some kind of really big ego reason behind that or something, but it was just because there's so my name is so common. Well, it, your name is common, but like I said, like every time I I look, it it is you. I mean, it, if you're talking like when we were talking before. I always think of you as the Mister Public Lands Whitetail Hunter with a bow, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's where you've kind of made your signature stamp in the outdoors. If, if you want to know how to hunt whitetails, particularly up in the upper Midwest mm-hmm. with a bow, then you have Tony Peterson write the article. Yeah. I mean, that, that's your signature, right? Yeah. And I mean, that was a, that was a sort of a calculated business move and part, man, probably, probably a decade ago, I was sitting there going, most of the, uh, the advice coming out of the deer world was coming from places that the average person would never get to hunt. Hmm. And, you know, we were hearing those complaints back when I was at Peterson's bow hunting. And I thought, how am I, you know, once again, like, how am I going to differentiate myself? And I felt like if people were going to pay me for advice, I should be doing it the hard way. And so, you know, this, I had the luxury of not having kids then and having lots of time and, and not knowing what it would entail. And so I said, I'm just going to, I'm going to try this and put more focus on public lands. And what it did it was a good business decision, right? That's super popular now, but it led me to realize how many other public land opportunities are out there too. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's something that just, it, the more time I spent out there in more States and traveling and doing the research, the more I realized how lucky we are to have these opportunities. And it's not just because you can go kill a big white tail. I mean, there's, there are so many public land opportunities. We're not really promoting a whole lot. You're seeing more of it now, mm-hmm. but it's, it's, pretty amazing what we have access to so i want to transition towards birds so when you were when you were whitetail hunting and you're going in these different places is that where you saw you know you were in nebraska kansas you shot quail and you're like huh yep is that how it happened 100 percent. huh i mean the, the fir- very first quail that we ever hunted and shot uh were because i found them hunting deer hmm. down in nebraska and, you know, flushing coveys, you know, you go down turkey season, you flush them. Go back and you hunt whitetails and you flush them. And just sitting there going, you know, they're not very far away from here in the Twin Cities where I live. And my, right. my good buddy lives just south of here that I hunt with a lot. He lives down in, in uh, Savage. And we're sitting there looking at that like, why aren't we going to do this? Hmm. And, you know, sometimes you'll be in one of those states and be sitting on your tree stand and see a whole flock of Sharpies fly over. Or, you know, you go down and turkey hunt down there and the roosters are cackling all spring. And it just, the more time you spend or, you know, you go, we'll go trout fish in northern Wisconsin. And, you know, you're, you're seeing the woodcock and it's just, or, or flushing the wood ducks off the ponds. And it's just, you just realize the more time you spend out there, there's so much good stuff to be had. Did you grow up bird hunting too? Yeah. 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 Where, where and dog and what was what was your background? Never had a dog. So my uncle, my uncle had uh, always had black labs, and he was a 
a pheasant nut. I mean, he lived. He, he still lives up uh, in Ely, and so he's a big-time grouse hunter too uh-huh. and hunted ducks. But his thing and my dad's thing was always pheasants. And so I could not get enough of hunting with my Uncle Billy because he was the only one who had a dog. I couldn't have a dog when I was younger. And so that was just like – the most special thing like i'm like oh my god when i you know <laughs> when i was when i turned 11 they let me go along and carry a gun huh. and it was just like it, it was amazing and it just coincided with a time when we had a lot of birds you know this was that at that point was the early 90s and i grew up close to iowa and this was before all the non-resident prices went crazy and you could go down there um, we could we could get down there in under an hour and we could you know, pinch ditches or do whatever we wanted. And it was just the high water mark of some of the, some of the roosters, you know, and it just, I, we didn't know what we had, you know, yeah. I mean, it's a classic case that, you know, you grow up with it and there's a lot of CRP around. And Iowa's harvesting a million roosters a year in the nineties. It was, we, the, the amount of birds we killed was incredible for how little we knew huh. and how, you know, I mean, when I was with my uncle, he had a good dog, but my, my high school buddies and I would drive down there and we would just pinch ditches and go go walk yeah. side by side without a dog, and we would kill roosters, and you know have good days where you were flushing birds, and it was just, it was just a testament to having the habitat mm. and having you know the land use practices then were real conducive to high pheasant numbers, and it was just an eye opener because when that went away, you know I, I always think about it like. Uh, you know, we we look at the stock market, and they say the stock market. How does it? How does the saying go? It goes up by the stairs. It takes the stairs up, but it takes the elevator down. Mm. And I think about that in terms of some of the some of the upland populations we've seen, where you know you kind of you just you get used to having them, and then when they go, they tend to go pretty quick. And it's in a couple of years, and you go, man, these these opportunities, they are just gone. You know what else climbs like stairs and falls like an elevator? What's when that? Bird numbers do that. CRP acres. Yeah. No. 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 It, I know. It, it, right? Because it's the same thing. It's like the CRP acres are going up the steps just ahead of those bird numbers. <laughs> yep. Right? And when the CRP numbers drop like an elevator, bird numbers are taking the next elevator down. Yep. Big and, time. And you've seen that growing up um, right on the Iowa border. Yeah. Um, you know, the first time I think we ever talked was you had just got done whitetail hunting in Wisconsin. And if I remember correctly, you you were also one of those guys that hunted the late, late season for rough grouse in Wisconsin, meaning yep. yeah, this was all oh, beginning three years ago, I think, Wisconsin changed their law. Uh, up until that point, you could hunt rough grouse the entire month of January in Wisconsin, the only state around us mm-hmm. that I, you could keep going and doing that. Yeah, I think the entire state except for like six counties hmm. down south, but generally, yes. Where we hunted, right? <laughs> yeah. Nor- the northern third. Y- anywhere you're going to find a grouse, yeah, right. it, it was open. And that was a really neat opportunity that went away. Yeah. And and probably isn't coming back. Yeah, what a drag. Yeah. In, in, the reason for listeners that might not know it, it went away because of the threat of West Nile virus mm-hmm. and sort of uncertainty around how much of an impact that was having on populations in the state of Wisconsin. And it's dialed back now to, I think, uh, the season in Wisconsin ends the last Sunday of December, well, last Sunday of December, December 31st. I think this year was like January 2nd, maybe. Yep. So somewhere at that turn of the year, yep. that it's going to end. Um, all right, so it, I, I, I know you you hunt whitetails with a bow 
pretty hard through the fall because your living is based around being a freelancer and creating content, mm-hmm. right? Writing stories, doing films, um, you know, shooting photography. Yep. But the minute that your your <laughs> final tag is punched, your mind turns to something else. Well, yeah, and it's actually there's been some bird hunting creep even even <laughs> before that because I, I mean it's this is I don't want anybody to think I'm complaining, but it's a it's a hard thing in some ways when you turn something like bow hunting deer into your job, mm-hmm. you know, especially if you're doing public land where you never know if somebody's going to walk in, you know. You, it, there, there's a lot of things that are just way outside of your control. And so you don't, you know, I don't, if I have a time to go, I have to go, you know, hot weather, cold weather, rain, whatever. Um, and my goal is always fill three, four five tags as early as possible, fill up that freezer, get enough content and then move on to the birds. But in that process, you know, that takes you for sure into October and October is like, you know, right. I got, I love hunting ducks. I love hunting woodcock and grouse. Um, you know, obviously I like the pheasant thing too. And so I've started doing catering my trips around that. So I, I hit September for whitetails really hard. Mm. And, you know, it's, it, it's a little tougher when you mix in some elk and stuff. Cause you're gone. You know I mean? I'm, I am gone in September mm. essentially, but if I have a good September, <laughs> then it gives me some time in October and for sure in November. And, you know, this year, just as an example, I filled my last whitetail tag in North Dakota up there on November 3rd or 4th. I can't remember. Mm-hmm. I didn't bow hunt again. I, I was, I had a, my freezer was full. I had a half a bull elk in there and a bunch of deer and I'm, I'm good. And I hunted birds so hard to the point where we, we went all the way into January, uh, in Nebraska and my buddy, my buddy, I hunt with a lot. Mm-hmm. He, uh, he and I, we, we, did three days down there and the last day we hunted this big spot down there we found some roosters and we were i you know we're both running flushers we're both running labs mm-hmm. and it felt like our dogs were birdie like 80 percent of the time huh. and so we were just it was a fast-paced deal and it was a huge property and this is all public as well yeah this is all public and so we ended up you know it's the three bird limit down there we had five birds in the in the game bags and like we need just that one more to wrap up this season and be done and i looked over at him and he goes dude i'm sick of pheasant hunting <laughs> like let's do you want to go home and i was like yeah let's go home like we 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 burned ourselves right to the ground even our yeah. dogs were like oh thank you let's <laughs> let's go take a nap in the truck so you know we, we talk about the public land bow hunting do you have that same ethos regarding bird hunting are you are you pheasant, quail, grouse? Is it all on public land, or is it a mix of things? Probably ninety, at least ninety-five percent of my bird hunting is public land. Huh. Um, I do a little duck hunting on private, um, and I do a little bit of upland hunting on private, but very little. Hmm. And if if I travel, it's all public. Um, so it's even around here in the Twin Cities, it's almost all public. Hmm. So. Uh, you, I, I've talked to a ton of landowners, and so this is a public and a private question. Ton of landowners that, you know, they won't let you on their property until after deer season, right? Mm-hmm. Like, hey, you know, yeah, I know you just want a bird hunt, you don't, you don't, but you're going to change the, the, you know, the, the, the pressure that you're applying to the birds is going to change the habits of the deer. Truth or fiction? A little of both, okay. I'm sure. Um, we, 
is we we've been kind of conditioned to preserve deer movement by not messing with them. I mean that that's the trend in deer hunting is generally get your spot, lock it up, and don't mess with them until the hunting is just perfect. You know, mm-hmm. either or it's the gun opener or whatever. Right. But they're way more tolerant of human intrusion than we think. And I, and I know this because I hunt public land where they get mm-hmm. bumped around all the time. Right. And so we. I, I don't blame anybody for doing that. I get it. I mean, it's their right, you sure, know. Sure, it's their property. Um, but it's kind of one of those things that's like, yeah, it's it, it may be not as big of a deal as we, we think it is. So when you're out um, deer hunting, sitting in that tree stand, and say the bird season is open, I, I, I used to love bow hunting, right? But then I added a dog. Then I added two dogs. <laughs> yep. And going up in that tree stand, the, that pang of guilt – Know that those dogs are back home sitting inside, like ah, it just ate me alive. Yep. So I haven't de- bow hunted in years and since I've owned dogs. It's like okay, I'm gonna run the dog out. Do you, I, you, I know how much you love your dog. You got to have that same level of guilt, right? Big time, yeah. big time. And it's, I, you know, like I said before, I'm, I'm allowing more of the bird creep to get in there, and so. <laughs> You know, early season, I will, I'll take mornings off and go sit for ducks mm-hmm. or, uh, you know, I'll, I'll structure my day. So especially if I'm over in Wisconsin, I can sit in the morning for a couple hours for whitetails, go get my dog, you know, chase the woodcock and the grouse for a while, then go sit in the afternoon again for deer and just try to try to wring the most out of, you know, every day that I have out there. So, mm-hmm. but yeah, I, I feel guilty and she makes me feel guilty because yeah. she, <laughs> well, does, she doesn't like being left she behind. She whine? When you're when you dress in camo and start to leave, does she, she know? Yeah, she she <laughs> hates it. She she hates it the most when if if I'm packing up like for a super early season whitetail hunt or something, and then I leave her behind. Uh-huh. You know, if if you bring her, you know, if I bring her with me somewhere, she knows like okay, well, I'm with it. Like I'm a, I'm a step closer, <laughs> you know. But yeah, it's it's rough. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's the same thing with. You know, you, if you spend a lot of time on the road at, at certain points in your life and you got little kids, you know, like mm-hmm. your little kids are like, well, you're going to go chase deer again. Right. But it is, you know, it is what it is. And it, I, you know, I feel guilty about my bird dog, but I also know that my, my dog lives a pretty good life. Yeah. <laughs> you know, she doesn't have a, a whole lot to complain about. She gets to hunt a lot. Yeah. Um, when you start to, to think about whitetails and birds, what parallels between approaching bow hunting on public lands and bird hunting on, on public land or just in general what parallels can you take from your expertise in in deer hunting to bird hunting um i think the thing that you learn if you want to be really successful is asking why like why are they there and why are they doing what they're doing and so you know when i'm i'm sitting on a tree stand in you know october 4th let's mm-hmm. say and the woodcock start you know, fluttering through at last light or first light, or I'm sitting over a pond and the wood ducks, they're coming in and you get to observe these things. So I'm, I'm hunting deer, but I'm watching, or the grouse fly out of the swamp and go to wherever they're feeding. You, you realize that they're out there doing certain things. Like they're, they, they have a daily routine. They have a pattern, you know, and Mm -hmm. they, they, you know, the weather affects it and the rain affects it. And it's, it's so easy to walk into you know, pheasant cover, you know, CRP or pheasant slough and just think, okay, the pheasants live here. Like, I'm just going to go hunt them in here, but we don't really think about like, why are they here? Why are they in this part of the slough or what part of the day is it? You know, 
we kind of get into that with, you know, I'm going to hunt them in the evening as they're walking back in on the corner or something like that. But with whitetails, you just, it's more of a natural thing to think like, well, yeah, I walk into the woods and yeah, there's deer that live here, but that doesn't, it's, it's not the same thing as walking into a cattail zoo and be like, oh, pheasants live in here. We'll just find them. Mm -hmm. When you start thinking about pheasants and, you know, John Locks, you mentioned, he talked about this a little bit with a study on public land where they, they, I think they did a, some kind of GPS chip study on them where the, the roosters, you know, everybody hunted around the outside edge and the roosters ran in the middle and, right. or the roosters spent the time in their, uh, in this Milo stubble or whatever. And people, people were very predictable and we don't think, you know, like what, wh what are all the influences on this bird's daily life and why are they going to be doing what they're doing? And what, you know, you've seen this a million times, I'm sure where you'll go into a place and it's just kind of dead except for one rooster, mm -hmm. you know, or one little group of roosters. And it's not that, you know, kind of constant flush of a hen, 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 and then maybe a rooster. And there's reasons for all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's easy, especially if you run a good dog, to not really think about it. But when you when you go into a place that everybody else can hunt, and, you know, you and I hunt some of the same places, when you go late season in southwestern Minnesota, there is no way you're the first person to hunt that. I mean, right. you might be, some of those spots, I wonder, they might get hunted every day of the season mm -hmm. or 98% of the days. Yeah. And so you have to hunt those birds around that knowledge and around their daily needs, you know, be, beyond survival from a load of sixes and a GSP. Right. Yeah, because you talk to <clears throat> private landowners that have property next to some of those public lands, especially some of the big ones, mm -hmm. you know, and you, you start making conversation with, you know, the farmer that lives there. And he's like, you know, you're the third truck that's parked here today. It's yep. like, no kidding, you know, where'd they walk, right? <laughs> yep. <laughs> but that's kind of the key is um, everybody either walks counterclockwise or clockwise yep. around the perimeter or the logical, um, you know, break points in different places of habitat. And so it's trying to figure out what, you know, when you get beyond the third or fourth day of the season, where did those get, birds get pushed to? Yep. Well, yeah, and you see, I mean, I see this with whitetails all the time where the, you know, just generally, the easier it is to hunt, the more people are going to hunt it. And, you know, so you see that when you go to places with a lot of public land that you're going to bird hunt. Mm -hmm. If it's got a nice two-track, you can walk down it and, you know, little patches of cover that are easy to work, yeah. more people are going to hunt it. Yeah. You get into, you know... I started looking when I'm, when I'm researching new States to bird hunt or even in Minnesota here, when I'm looking for new properties, I'm kind of like bigger is just better mm -hmm. because I know it's just, you know, hunters in general are so predictable and really a lot of them aren't going to work that hard. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and it's, it's kind of, you know, you see that in the whitetail world too. Mm -hmm. You know, you know, you want to drive your four wheeler down the logging road, you want to park and you want to walk to a hundred yards to your stand. And a lot of people don't want to make this a ton of work and that's okay. But that, when you get a bunch of those people out there, mm -hmm. they push the animals into certain spots or they're just not going to certain spots to hunt them. And so, you know, if you want to, if you want to get on birds consistently in public land, like you're going to probably break a sweat and you're going to get wet and swear and bust through the ice. And it's going to be a different kind of thing. So, um, so describe some of those spots. I mean, you already alluded to them, you know, breaking through and different things, but you know, some of those spots are way the heck back, right? Yeah. And some of those spots are super obvious too, but we just walk past them. Yeah. Uh, man, you, for sure. Some of that stuff you walk past it's, it, it becomes a little bit, 
it's it's interesting when you have snow mm-hmm. you know because you get to see where the birds are spending their time mm-hmm. and i think part of it is it's just a matter of accepting a certain level of misery to get to them and it's so this year was an interesting you know especially for late season pheasants this year was interesting because that heavy wet snow blew into those cattail sloughs and it just changed everything you know what i mean it just it was my this is the first time in my life my dog any of the dogs i've ever had you know she's running along and by the end of the first weekend with after that snow her her like forearms her shins kind of mm. were just they were rubbed raw like, you know, and their paws get beat up and you see, yeah. you know, their faces get beat up, but it was clear that she was breaking through ice and snow in a different way than we've had to in the past. And some of the places we hunted, you know, there might be like 400 yards of that stuff mm-hmm. to wade through, which is just pure misery, but you get where <laughs> like a hill blocks the wind right. and all of a sudden you're in a place where the, the cover is more traditional. Mm-hmm. And instead of there being five birds in there, there's 40 mm-hmm. because that's where they can move too. And so it's kind of a matter of just looking at it going, all right, this, even this big chunk, if it's a half a section or a section or two sections, there's something in here that's right for them. And it might require you to really bust your butt for a long time to get there. And it's, it, it becomes sort of a management, you know, you have to manage yourself physically, but you really have to manage the dogs because you don't want to blow them out Mm -hmm. just getting there. One of the obvious things that, um, I was thinking about obvious places I still don't hunt, even though I know there's birds there. And what I'm describing is some of that beautiful habitat that's right alongside a highway, Mm -hmm. right? You've driven past them too. And I just can't bring myself knowing full well that there's thousands of other hunters that aren't going to hunt there, right? The birds have already been pushed there, but gosh, I just, the, the risk of hunting alongside a highway, even if it's beautiful public land habitat and having a dog escape me, right, yep. and being on the edge of a highway. But if you can figure out how to hunt those where maybe you put a uh, one person on the edge, right, and keep the dog somewhat contained, there's a heck of a lot of birds on those yep. types of properties. We we actually wrapped up our Minnesota season on a place like that because we've done the same thing. We've you know driven by them dozens and dozens of times, and we had – I think we'd, we'd been going pretty hard for like three days and we were on our way home. And I was like, let's just go try this one. It was along I-90. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a fence there. So it's like, okay. So those, you're right. Because if you can find those, yep. those much safer, right? Yep. And a lot of times it's hard to get access to those because you got to drive all the way around, like find yep. the exit and then yep. <laughs> circle all around the way around to find it. This this one was that. Okay. And it had a lot of birds in it. Huh. Um, it had a lot. We had a lot of wild flushes. Um, it was, it was one of those. I don't know why this happens. There's some kind of geothermal reason for it, but some of those sloughs freeze up nice, mm-hmm. and some of them are just the whole thing is you're just busting through. This was one of those ones where every step you took, you busted through. Ugh. And so you know, you it, lab guys can have that. Oh, dude. <laughs> it was. Uh, 
that one was a rough one. And it, the, a lot of times that, that when that situation's happening, uh-huh. those flushes are 50 yards out, not 20. Yeah. Because it's just a timing thing, you know. There's, there's, such a, there's such a rhythm to following that dog and letting that dog work. And when you get out of rhythm because you can't keep up mm-hmm. or the dog can't work at its pace, then you see that happen. And we had that in a spot like that, but we flushed a pile of mm-hmm. roosters. And it, it was kind of one of those deals where you're like, oh, this is – we'll go back there. At mm-hmm. some point, you know, but just that experience, you're like, I know they're there, but man, that was a lot of work. Mm-hmm. So, you know, one thing as you think about, or as I think about you and whitetails, I think about scouting, right? Because in order to deer hunt, like the first, the first page, the first chapter of the deer hunting book is scout. Is scouting the first page in the bird hunting book? Um, it, no, but... W- well, I shouldn't say it. If you're traveling, <laughs> yeah. di- e-scouting, mm-hmm. yeah. You know, I, I, I look at aerial photography a lot and mm-hmm. satellite imagery, but deer scouting is different. You know, I mean, you're it's such a necessity, and it can be a year-round thing. Uh, I'm not scouting pheasants in April. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you just it's just different. But what I think... What I think you realize when you spend a lot of time out there scouting and not hunting something, you know, like I know you like to go out and walk in the boundary waters and in the off season and yep. spend time out in the woods. Yep. I think the time out in the woods and out in the field really matters. And I think we're missing that a lot of times. And, you know, you, you kind of hear it like referred to as the old school woodsmanship and it's, and it's evidenced in whitetail hunting. Like if you, if you get to know the people who really know deer well, they, they just love scouting and they spend a lot of time out there hmm. and bird hunting we don't we don't think of it the same way, but everybody knows everybody who's done it a lot. They know when their spidey senses tingle, and you're close <laughs> to a good spot, or you just you can just yeah. feel it in the air. Or you just know it's going to turn on, or you you walk into a spot and you go, I don't think so. Like it just doesn't, even though it might you know on paper yeah. look the same. There's something there that's different. So that spidey senses, I mean, I know exactly what you mean because I don't remember exactly when it happened or what age, but. I sort of do, I guess. When I started taking people grouse hunting that didn't grow up grouse hunting at all, that you know, I was being the guide, mm-hmm. and they were they were asking me, pumping me with all these questions. Why are we hunting here? Well, I just feel it, man. <laughs> right? Like, yep. so part of it you can look and say, okay, it's ten to fifteen year old aspen. It's got some Christmas tree size evergreens. There's a stream here. It just it's grousey. Yep. Right. But then, you know, you're driving around and you're trying to find new spots and you didn't take the time to do satellite imagery or look at Onyx and you're just looking for a new spot to go. And you pull up to us and you're like, we're going to hunt here. And they ask you, why are you hunting here? I, get, <laughs> it, I see some of it with my eyes and I feel a whole bunch of it with my body. Yep. You know, and the more that you pheasant hunt, the more that you quail hunt, that spidey sense happens as well. Yep. Do you remember when it started, when that, when you just got, um, it, I, I guess it's like being in the zone from a hitter's perspective, right? Like yeah. You just, you just know. Yeah. There's, there's a confidence thing to it. I mean, it's, and, it, and that all just ties into experience, mm-hmm. you know, and it's, it's the same thing. You know, I've, I've interviewed a pile of good dog trainers in my life, really accomplished dog trainers. And everybody wants you to, you know, ask them the question like that, that's going to take the listener from point A to point B, like bad dog to good dog or mm-hmm. puppy to developed dog. 
And what you can't really ever get out of those people, like the Dawkins of the world, is their level of experience. They don't even know. Like when they're looking at a dog and watching it, they don't, they're not explaining to you everything that's going on because they couldn't possibly do it. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. they, they have so much experience with dogs that they're working on a level that we can't even fathom. Mm-hmm. And so they have to figure out a way to try to explain that to idiots like us who've only trained a few dogs. Yep. And you're, you're just shedding all this data. Because it's just impossible for them to tell you, like, oh, they, that dog made one little move, and they saw the reaction or the, you know, a flick of the tail or the the eye contact for two seconds, and in their brain, that's work, that's that's going somewhere. For us, we just totally miss it. Yeah. And so it's all about, you know, I mean, it's like reading dogs in the field. Like every time, you know, I I don't do this anymore with my dog a whole lot, but when you watch a flusher and you're you've worked with them enough and they're good. And I'm sure it's the same thing with pointers. Like when you doubt them, when you're like, oh, oh, nope, yeah. I think you got this wrong, yeah. wrong buddy. Well, who's usually wrong, <laughs> yep. you know, and we should know better. Yep. And it's just a, it's just experience and experience and experience. And it, it matters so much being out there. Yeah. You're, you're right on about dog trainers too. Cause you know, over the years with K fan, I've interviewed a whole ton and you, you think about Tom Dockin and Bob West, they sort of break the curve because they can explain more of it than the general dog trainer can, yep. and it separates them from a whole host of other folks. But there is, there is, and I don't mean that in any way disrespectful to some of the other folks because they they know it. But Tom and Bob West, in particular, can really articulate it because yep. so much of it is just buried within that gray matter. Yep. Um, you've interviewed what do we say fifty eight. Talk to us about the Sporting Dog Podcast, how that came to be, and well, start there, how it came to be, because I got some other questions. So I, you know, probably, there there was a point in time where anything related to bow hunting and big game and whitetail hunting, it was probably 90% of my job, Mm -hmm. and 90% of the content I produced, and then, you know, fishing and upland hunting and turkey hunting and everything else was the other 10%. And I started getting more work for gun dog magazine and I, I've just always loved dogs and I've always loved hunting with them. Just like it's, it's way up there on my list. It's, you know, it's one of my favorite things to do. And I realized how much I was enjoying learning because, you know, this was I didn't grow up as a dog trainer. I didn't even grow up with dogs. Mm. And so when I started interviewing these people and I was working with my own dogs at the time, I'm like, man, my knowledge base is low and I'm loving this process. And so that's become more and more and more of my job, um, sort of by luck and sort of by design. And in that process, I realized, you know, like what we're just talking about with, you know, if you give me a a feature in Gun Dog Magazine, I got 1,800 words to cover Mm -hmm. something. And so you got to really pare that down to be like, okay, how do you do gunfire introduction or how do you do live bird introduction or something very, very step-based and, you know, that you can get somewhere with it. But I realized, you know, interviewing those people, there's just so much left unsaid. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, man, you know, there's only a few platforms where you can spend an hour or two with somebody. And I just, I wanted to do it partially because I felt like the market could use it. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And I know there's a lot of, there's a lot of hunting 
upland waterfall type podcasts out there but i wanted to do one specifically about the dogs Mm -hmm. because that's you know like that's the linchpin man that's like the whole reason we're all here basically um in, in this space anyway and so i thought i can do this and learn a whole bunch of stuff for myself mm. and it, and I always think like if I'm learning the audience is learning and it what it does or at least what it's done for me so far is really open my eyes to the greater dog world you know like we we have these trainers that we love mm-hmm. and they're phenomenal but then there's all this whole world of canine researchers and people who are researching nutrition and all these other aspects and it's like you could n- maybe never hit the end of it. Yeah, because I, I, you can see that real clearly. What's the website that people can go look? It's sportingdogtalk.com. Sporting dog. So you you look and you see the kind of the arc of the guests that you've had on, right? And you start Tom Doc and Tina Doc and Tiffany Lukoski, um, George Hickax, and then you start to see like your interest change a little right yep. you do so you had uh some guys doing uh drug um uh, fi- finding sniffing drugs using dogs right yep. and you start to see some of these guests sort of evolving that they're not the traditional bird hunting dog trainer but you found a way to talk to these folks and then make your listeners more knowledgeable about their own bird hunting dog yep. through different aspects of what dogs can do and uh, we st- we were talking about this on the floor of pheasant fest and you were just going on and on <laughs> right it, i love like, it. It, it it's really opened up your world hasn't it? it it has and what it it made me realize when i when i started that podcast and I'm, I'm in the same place with the the big game stuff like i just i want people to have a good experience mm-hmm. like, i want people to be happy like that's kind of the base level of why I'm doing some of this stuff now and the dog thing the sporting dog talk. Yeah. We, we got a lot of hunting dog stuff, but when you show somebody that what dogs are capable outside of this kind of, you know, we're we're in this little world where we see the pointers and we see the flushers Mm -hmm. and we see the, the quail and the, what we're so used to seeing. And then you see these dogs that are adventure dogs. And then you see these dogs that are taking down cartel members Mm -hmm. in, California and you see dogs that are saving endangered sea turtles and sniffing invasive species and working through the conservation side of things sniffing cancer all kinds blood of blood sugar diabetes all kinds of stuff you go these dogs you know it's so it's so rudimentary but they need a job mm. and they love having a job and they can have lots of jobs mm. and it what it makes you go is man if you have a dog that's you're having trouble with like with the the fundamentals of obedience or some kind of hang up in the in the field hunting or out of the duck blind or something it's like you can 100 percent get your dog better like you can 100 percent get that dog to where it needs to be because look at what these people are doing with dogs yeah. like your dog is 100 percent capable of that and the more you do with a dog the more you're going to like that relationship and so it just spirals and it's been for me it's been a wild <laughs> it's been a wild <laughs> ride because it, it's it's gone a few places i never thought it was going to go and it's just been fun man. what like what place did you never in your wildest dreams think it was going to go i had you know kind of when i fleshed out the the business plan for it i knew i wanted to do some research and I, I knew i wanted to have some uh outside the bird dog industry mm-hmm. guess I just didn't know I didn't know who those people would be mm-hmm. and I didn't know I didn't know 
the level of expert I'd get to. Hmm. You know what I mean? Hmm. And it, it's been a weird one because, you know, you mentioned cancer research dogs. And, you know, we're, we're tied into hunting. And I cannot get anyone from a cancer research facility to even even give us a chance. Hmm. Like, And I, I just have to assume it's because we're tied into hunting and they don't want to. And it kind of bums me out because, you know, these are like nonprofits that are doing cancer research and we have an audience for them and they're like, no, we're not doing that hmm. with you. And it makes me, ner- you know, like you mentioned in this, in this office here, we're sitting under a, a leaky roof <laughs> right. and, and telling the audience like, hey, this money's going to what you want it to go for. It makes me nervous when somebody who's clearly out there trying to raise money and I could give them an audience and they're like, not you, bro. Hmm. And I'm like, why? What's going on? Right. And, it, you know, I don't know. That's just whatever but where it, where it has taken me is you know i've i've learned that 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 thing which was weird mm-hmm. but i've also once you break into some of these other circles then and you have somebody on and you show them like you care about this and we're all in this together and we all want good dogs and we want responsible breeding and we want to teach people how to pick the right puppy for them then you get people on board and you realize there's a lot of uh social constructs that are that are bleeding into even like our dog choices and and our life choices and when you start interviewing these people who you would just would not expect on this podcast then they go okay you're just like me like you love dogs okay mm-hmm. like we come from vastly different walks of life you know they may be like a, a researcher at Yale or something and I'm some idiot who writes squirrel hunting articles you know like <laughs> but at the at the end of the day we lay down with our dogs and we love them and right. it's 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 a neat experiment anyway huh Where's what's the next phase of sporting dog talk podcast? Um, I've got I've got some stuff planned. So yeah. the the way that I see this going is I, you know we're, we're we're still pushing the um, you know gun dog trainers. Mm-hmm. They'll always be a part sure. of that. But I'm I'm I've got some more in like interesting research people lined up. And I'm really eyeballing the the adventure dog market mm. because I think in and maybe this is like way overselling my value, but I think we need kayakers mm-hmm. and we need hikers and we need mountain climbers and base jumpers. And if you if you're out there and you love wild places, wild public places, you need to work with us and we need to work with you. Yeah. Like we don't need any walls between us because the future is very uncertain. And so one of the ways to bridge that is just a love of dogs. And when you look at what people are training dogs to do now, mm-hmm. it's like we just have such a natural bridge there. Like yeah. we just need to meet in the middle. And so I'm I'm eyeballing that world. Yeah, that's really because, you know, how many years has the hunting community and the outdoor adventure market talked about? Like they have the sh- same shared goals. Yep. But, you know, the, you know, one has SHOT Show and one has the OR Show and never the two shall meet, you know. Yep. And I haven't thought about the intersection of, of dogs. But, it, you know, I, I live that, you know, when the hunting season's over, my favorite thing in the, to do in the off season, and you mentioned this, is strap on a pair of cross-country skis, go up to the Boundary Waters and follow some my short airs. Yep. From Frozen Lake to Portage <laughs> to Frozen Lake. And it's the same thing as bird hunting without a shotgun in my hand. You know, I'm exploring. I'm seeing nature. And we're running into some, some birds. Hopefully no wolves, <laughs> you know. And, yeah. and it's the same same sort of core values. It, it is. And it's, I think we're, I think humans are getting a lesson right now. You know, this whole coronavirus thing. Hmm. We're... 
we're seeing how interconnected we, we really are now. Like, tra- you know, air travel's crazy right now. And global commerce is, we're so tied in to, you know, countries that are 6,000 miles away from us. And we're realizing how interconnected we really are. Hmm. And we're seeing this, you, you see this with, you know, bird dogs and adventure dogs and police dogs and whatever else. And then you see this in the same thing with just land usage. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you talk about awesome pheasant habitat, it's not just pheasant habitat. I know you guys have covered that a million times on here. I mean, it's pollinators. Right. And you want to talk about the health of butterflies and songbirds and ground nesting critters and all kinds of stuff. All of this is tied together, not to mention, you know, CRP grass being a good buffer between too much runoff going into your trout streams. And all of this is tied together. And we've we've just kind of gotten to this weird place in society where we feel like we're supposed to be enemies. And then you meet people and you talk to them and you're like, we're, we're all the same. Like, we're all in the same boat. Like, if you love dogs, we're probably, we, right. we could probably be buddies, we're, right? We're not even six degrees of Kevin Bacon separated. Yeah, no, right? four tops. Right? Yep. <laughs> um, all right. So I mentioned you've, you've had a ton of dog tra- hunting dog trainers on the show. Mm-hmm. And you've interviewed folks. You write a ton of stuff with with Tom and Tina Dockin. And so throw some gems out there, some, some core basics that – our pheasants forever and quail forever audience should keep in mind maybe they're you know springtime they're adding a new puppy to their to their family what are some of the basics that uh every there's a thread that pulls through with all the interviews you've done i think one of the most poignant themes that's that's coming across lately is be aware of your bias or you maybe be aware of your biases in, in regards to your dog so we all know we all love our specific breeds right mm-hmm. And I keep thinking about this. You know, the first dog that I owned was a golden retriever. I got a golden retriever because my roommate in college had a golden retriever, and we hunted pheasants over. And I was like, okay, this dog puts up pheasants. I love it. Mm-hmm. And then I get a golden retriever. That dog dies. I get a lab. And now I'm like, labs forever. Mm-hmm. And it's easy to get locked into a, a breed because of your experience. But what I'm seeing is more and more recommendations from people who know a lot more than me saying like, really evaluate your life what mm-hmm. what do you want to hunt with it you know i mean if people listen to this they're probably hunting pheasants they're hunting quail sure but but you know how much time do you have to train how how long are your days at work what's the entirety of the life you're going to give this dog and and then start looking at a speech at a breed of dogs that you really really want to get and and not just go i like brown flushers or <laughs> you know i like sure. i like white and black pointers you know like right. really really think about your decision and then on top of that i've had a lot of veterinarians on lately and it's this keeps coming up over and over again where even even people you know who are practicing in places you know sioux falls or out in idaho where you'd think you know they're seeing a lot of bird dogs they're Mm -hmm. seeing maybe maybe big running western dogs um, still saying 30 to 40 percent of the dogs that come in are overweight Mm -hmm. and you know if you talk to uh a veterinarian here in the twin cities like i just i just interviewed a couple of them and it was like a general consensus of 50 percent of the dogs we're seeing are obese hmm. and that's you know that's partially just bias you don't hmm. see that coming on to your dog and you don't you know you don't see them putting on the weight day after day after day and then somebody who doesn't see them for six months goes whoa your dog's got kind of kind of big and it's just easy to miss that stuff hmm. but and it's not it's not a reflection on anyone personally it's just we all do that, and some of us personally. <laughs> well, it, hey, it happens, buddy. Right. But right. what it, what it means, regardless of how you you view that part of it, is 
your dog's not as healthy as it could be. Yeah. Your dog's not as happy. Could you know if you're dealing with sporting dogs and now you're talking some ACL issues, maybe right. hip issues, and it's just a quality of life thing. And right. so, at the very least, we're starting to ask the audience, like, please pay attention to this because even if you think that that's not me. It's all of us. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it's kind of the same thing when you talk about like an addiction to smartphones. Like, man, there's about six people left in this country who aren't addicted mm -hmm. to them. And it's like, we, we have to be aware of this stuff. Yeah, you're right. With the, with the extra weight, whether it's their joints or, you know, just their overall longevity. You know, I, I forget what the statistic is, but if they're overweight, they lose not months, but years off of yep. their life. Well, yeah, and it's... It's to the point, I've had several veterinarians say to me lately that they think that we've actually kind of forgotten what a bird dog's supposed to look like or what an mm. in-shape dog. And um, I had Seth Bynum on, um, I don't know, a couple months ago, and he, you know, he's a veterinarian out in Idaho. And I think it was him talking about how his neighbors have called him in before because his bird dogs don't look like they've been fed. <laughs> right. It's like they just look like bird dogs that have been hunting, you know. And he's yeah. got pointers, so they just yeah. naturally when you when you slim up a pointer, they look skinny. They can, you know? but but yeah. we forget, you know, that they're that they're even supposed to look like that. Yeah. Um, all right, so I want to move to a, a lightning round, kind of a um, mix of hunting and and dog questions. Um, so you, you've already alluded to this part of becoming a better dog trainer is switching breeds. Yep. So <laughs> if, if you're, what's your second choice behind So, so you've had goldens, you currently have a lab. What are you anxious to test out? If I went, the, the next breed I'd go to would probably be a GSP. Really? Yep. So I did an interview with you. <laughs> I know. Like, that, see, let's see, that was game fair. So that was August. Yep. And I think we talked, like, at the time, you are like, I've never, ever considered having a GSP. And I, did you want a Monsterlander or what? what nope. at that Oh, Griff. Was it a Griff that you were thinking about? I've, well, I, I can get, I can be pretty flighty. Okay. But here, let me, <laughs> so the GSP thing that I, I said to you was something like, it, they had never really been on my radar, yeah. but every time I'm around one, I'm like, "This dog's awesome." Huh. And, I, and when I see the, when I see the, like the focus, the, the the bird drive, that that gets me interested. And I really think this is kind of like doing the public land thing. You know, I love to duck hunt, so a GSP is not a great choice for me in that. But I do a lot of upland hunting, and I've never trained a pointer. Mm. I've never owned one. And I sort of just feel a responsibility to do that. And I also just want the experience of owning one. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, and, and there are a lot of pointers that I would give a chance to, but in my position, if you want to speak to the most people, yeah. you know, it's yeah. either labs or GSPs and they're just the most popular, sure. you know, on each side. And so that, that's just purely sort of a business thing. Like, you know, it, it the GSP experience would speak to a lot of people and it would trickle down to some of these other breeds too. That makes sense. So, so I, I have a, a new puppy, as you know, yep. who is um, uh, 17 weeks now. And <laughs> I had uh, her out. Do you know John Zeman? Um, he, he's from uh, Zimmerman area. He, I know uh, the name. So if folks that are listening remember the, the uh, Montana Horseback Hunt podcast, John is the guy that owns the horses. and mm -hmm. He's a... Um, uh, basically a short hair whisperer. So I went out dog training with him, the sand dune state forest, uh, mm -hmm. two weeks ago with my, with <laughs> my, uh, 70 week old that we put out a, a pen raised quail and my, my new pup Gitchy hid behind me 
for bird introduction. Well, so uh, thankfully, you know, she's only she's less than five months old, so I yep, you'll I get there. Time. <laughs> but her prey drive at five months, well, four plus months old is is latent. Let's just yeah. say that. <laughs> Oh, uh, that's a wonderful way to put that. Yeah. All right. Uh, lightning rounds going kind of slow. Yeah. <laughs> uh, your favorite bird to hunt? Pheasants. No doubt. Wild public land pheasants are the number one. Number two is rough grouse, and everything else is in number three spot. That, okay. So. And I like maybe the second time we talked, it was to go. You were you're planning a trip to the Sand Hills. Mm-hmm. And you wanted to hunt uh, chickens and sharpies, and when you got down there, you were surprised by a different bird, right? Am I remembering right? Didn't you <sighs> run into some quail down there? Yeah, we uh, had an amazing trip. Then we ran into everything. Yeah, roosters, berry chicken, sharp tails, bunch of quail, and uh, you know, I'm running a flusher, and so I love, you know, sharpies are cool, man. Yeah. Prairie chickens are really cool. Quail are so unique to me because I didn't grow up with them. Mm. And so I love it all. But for me, running the kind of dog I'm running and just kind of the way I'm wired, the dog work and the 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 ability for a rooster to get away from you, I just love it. I, like I can't <laughs> – it just it just works with me, you know. Huh. And I, I know if I was running a different kind of dog, it might be a different choice. Yeah. But at this point in my life, that's just it. Yeah, no fault there, man. Um, your favorite state to hunt pheasants? Oh. <sighs> Currently, Minnesota. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's going to be a surprise for a lot of listeners. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we mentioned that, you know, I'm, I'm pretty busy climbing into trees for part of the season. And so late season, December is really a month where I hit the birds hard. And I love late season roosters in Minnesota. Um, oh, for an overall experience, Nebraska is pretty tough to mm-hmm. beat. Um, but I've, you know, I. Minnesota is way underrated. From a pheasant hunting perspective, right? Big time. Yeah. It's uh, it's just, you know, it's one of those things that it's really easy for people to say, well, there's no birds left here. Or the the rough grouse numbers aren't what they used to, so I'm not going to go hunt. And we, we use these excuses all the time not to go. And like I said before, if you get out there, yeah, man, there's a lot of opportunity. Yeah. And it, it is. It's underrated. And we went and scouted some stuff. We, we limited out a few days this year and went down to Iowa and looked around just because I hadn't been down there to bird hunt a long time, and I gotta imagine there's, I, I gotta imagine there's a reason to go to Iowa again yeah. from what we saw. Yeah, there are part, parts of Iowa that are glory days. Yep. Right, but it's like anything, you gotta know where the habitat is. Yep. Uh, for the the public lands bow hunter, right, and a bird hunter, what's what's the most epic mixed bag you've ever assembled? Man. You would you'd be hard pressed to beat Nebraska. Yeah. Um, North Dakota can be really good, <laughs> especially if you like the duck thing. Um, but I would say Nebraska. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, another state that's kind of a sleeper is Oklahoma. Hmm. Um, I've spent I've I made two trips down there to hunt whitetails, and uh, the the quail that I've run across in public land in certain parts have almost made me make that drive again. Hmm. Um, so it, I'm a, or, or Wisconsin, you know, I know that, I know these are long winded answers, but you, you can go over to Wisconsin and the deer hunting's okay. Mm-hmm. You know, you can find a bunch of deer on public land, uh, but the woodcock and the grouse thing is unreal. Mm-hmm. And the amount of 
you know, good for me anyway, wildfowl hunting I find on public and the beaver ponds and stuff like that is really special. You know, I, I wouldn't disagree with Wisconsin, but I, I think that perimeter, that corridor you're talking about, North Dakota, and you kind of jumped to Nebraska, but North Dakota, South Dakota, Kansas, Nebraska, like that whole corridor for deer, and now it's tough to get a license to waterfall hunt in yep. South Dakota, right? But uh, deer, waterfall, and then upland game birds and the variety of upland game birds across that, you know, the northern Great Plains. <sighs> yep. Right? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, and it, you know, you, you can get into Kansas and have a January hunt down there and and you know and we haven't even mentioned montana no i know uh i know yeah there's no birds in montana (laughs) yeah it's it's really incredible and you know with with the the rise of onyx and Mm. that kind of thing to be able to find public land and plan your trips and not waste time and Mm. i mean i when i started going down to iowa you know we had the paper maps and we were writing like addresses on shell boxes and being like okay you know fourth and lone stone street is where there's public land or this old guy let us hunt in there and i i remember like at the end of the season i would just have this it probably looked like an insane man in my truck but all these ripped up shell boxes with you know pen written on their addresses and now it's like you can plan out a trip so much easier and find land and see see what's open and see why it's open and look on it and go okay there's good habitat on there or there's not i mean it's it's incredible so when you're gone for like the entire month of september how the heck do you pack for that well it's multiple trips okay so you do get to come home repack yeah. and bail yeah it's uh my my whole life is just chaos mm. like it's when you when you think about you know this is one of the reasons I love traveling for bird hunting. I mean, you bring the dog stuff, mm-hmm. you know, bring a couple shotguns, and you just the gear is like pretty minimal. When mm-hmm. you go bow hunting, and especially I'm I'm tent camping primarily, mm-hmm. so you got all the camping stuff, and then you got all the bow hunting stuff in the tree stands. Then you got to have the coolers in case you kill something. Mm-hmm. And when I go pack for a like when I pack for my first bird hunt of the year, I'm like I feel like I'm forgetting a whole <laughs> bunch of stuff because I you know I got a bag of dog food and I got some water and some huh. food and it's just so nice. Huh. Do you have a bucket list or what's your what is your bucket list bird hunt? You know, I don't, I don't. And yeah. I'm kind of, part of that, and part of that's probably like a self-preservation thing to not dream too big. Mm. I do, I do want to do the Arizona quail thing, mm. you know, that everybody's getting into right now. Yeah, and everybody went there this fall. Yeah, everybody. You know? Yeah. Just, just not me. I was yeah. the only person who didn't. <laughs> um, I, I like that idea partially because I've just never been to Arizona mm. and I've never hunted down there. But no, I just... I can find something that I want to do anywhere. Mm-hmm. So it's not, I don't need to go, you know, do chuckers and hell's Canyon or something like that. I, I would, mm-hmm. but I don't, I don't have anything like that. That's I'm just like, I have to go do that. Mm-hmm. You know? So have you been to Alaska? No. Yeah. I haven't either. I've, I've had two trips planned that fell through. Huh. I know I, I interviewed, uh, I interviewed Randy Newberg before the, um, before he spoke at Pheasant Fest, okay, and he was talking about how he's going to do some uh, caribou hunt, I think, up there, and he's he's mostly going to shoot ptarmigan. <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's on my list, but I've heard from folks that have done it. It's like, yeah, it's beautiful walking the tundra, just gorgeous. But you like shoot one, and it's like, eh, kind of anticlimactic. Yeah, I've heard that too. Yeah, and it, that's a long way to go. I know, and I don't, I don't necessarily want to do that without my own dog. Right, it's so far of a drive. I know. Yeah, that's uh, 
I mean, that that's the other big thing too, is traveling with a dog that far mm-hmm. is crazy. Yeah. You know, I mean, people do it, but there's nothing. I mean, I, I did. Have you ever been to Argentina? I haven't. So I did that. I did the dove and duck thing. Mm. I think, I don't know, three years ago, four years ago. And what I find in those situations, you know, you're bird hunting all day long. You don't have dogs. So mm. it's weird. I mean, mm. it's, it's an incredible experience, but I either want to go where I can hunt my butt off with my dog mm-hmm. or I want to go travel and experience cool stuff. Like they don't, you know what I mean? Like the, the two don't generally jive. Right. So I'm kind of, I'm kind of a simple dreamer. I yeah. Guess. No, I'm right there with, I, I did that Arizona, uh, Patagonia, Sonoida area this, this past winter without my dogs. I flew down there, had a terrific time, um, shot birds, behind good dogs with good guides, Patrick Flanagan, border, border, border. border. Yep. Uh, but I wouldn't do it again without my dogs. Yep. I learned. I had a great time. But next time, and there will be a next time, yep. I'm driving. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, the, the thing about the Arizona draw, other than the you know three different kinds of quail, is it's just open so late. Yeah. And so we're closed right. up. But if you start looking into Texas and you mm-hmm. start looking into Oklahoma, you can, you can hunt pretty late right. and find some birds, too. And, you know, Arizona, I, I, I've done a lot of coos deer research down there. And the, the drive is, like, mm-hmm. so far. Right, it's um, 24 hours from northern Minnesota. Yeah. <laughs> or central Minnesota. Yeah, so it's just the logistical. Right. You know, we need Elon Musk to get on this and get us there quicker somehow. <laughs> A portal. <laughs> All right, final question. You've been writing about hunting bird dogs, public lands, habitat for 20-plus years, right? And, you know, you live in the backyard of where Pheasants Forever was created here in the Twin Cities. You followed us for a long time. What, what would, how would you coach Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever on our kind of our conservation message? What should we be telling reporters and in, in our audience about uh, what we're doing that, you know, how would you tweak our message? Um, I think it's, I don't know if it's a, it's a Pheasants Forever specific message, but I think just in general, we in the bird dog upland world especially have kind of leaned into the i don't know how to put this without getting into trouble the you know expensive over and under over your shoulder walking into the you know the carefully planted milo and mode you, you know what i mean mm. and and you guys have done a really good job of of busting out and doing the pheasant tour and kind of rooster road trip yeah and just showing the public land thing but i think I think there are a lot of people who would either be really interested in hunting with their dog and 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 finding out what the quail pheasant thing or the upland thing is all about who look at how it's how hunting has been presented kind of mm. to them and go it doesn't feel inclusive. You know what I mean? And it's like it's a weird thing because if you go out and you know you hunt public land all the time you see the people out there they don't look like the people we see on the covers of magazines a lot of times, sure. you know? And so I think it's I think we have an opportunity, and I, th- I think organizations like Pheasants Forever have an excellent opportunity just to talk to more people that way. And, you know, you you have that bridge with the dogs, but you also have that bridge with, you know, we're not just helping birds here so we can shoot them. Right. Like, this, this is good for the environment. This is, this is going to be good for your kids and your grandkids, and, and it, it's so hard to argue with the mission. It's just a matter of, uh, like, are we talking to the same people over and over again, mm-hmm. or are we reaching out to these new people? Yeah, great, great point. Great point. This has been fun. <laughs> it's been a blast, man. I don't know why we waited so long. You're right. You know, I, you're dude, 30 miles away. I was sitting by my phone waiting every day for you to call me. 
<laughs> well, I appreciate you you coming over and, and joining. Um, we'll do it again. Awesome. Thanks, man. Yeah, thank you. Um, that, folks, was Tony Peterson. You can find his, well, all kinds of writing if you just Google Tony J. Peterson. But uh, definitely check out Sporting Dog Talk podcast. It's available anywhere you uh, download and listen to podcasts. And tremendous guests that uh, he's had on related to, to bird hunting, bird dogs, but then way beyond, you know, what what our dogs can uh, really put together from an in- intellect perspective or just intelligence, um, easy for me to say. Um, it, it is really phenomenal. So, uh, folks, thanks for listening. I'll remind you, it is Bird Dogs for Habitat Month. Please go online and uh, throw a buck or two in favor of your favorite breed of bird dog. We're going to put that dollar to work for Upland Habitat. So your favorite pup has places to roam that are birdie. Uh, thanks for listening. And I'm Bob St. Pierre saying, always follow the dog. Something good will rise. <laughs>